Hello and welcome to the Zero to Finals podcast. My name is Tom and in this episode I'm going to be talking to you about alcoholic liver disease and some of the other negative effects of alcohol, particularly alcohol dependence syndrome. If you want to follow along with written notes on this topic, you can follow along at zerodefinals.com slash ALD or in the gastroenterology section of the Zero to Finals medicine book. So let's get straight into it. The use of alcohol comes with several problems. Alcohol causes damage to various tissues in the body and can also lead to something called alcohol-dependent syndrome. Here we're going to cover alcoholic liver disease and alcohol dependence and touch on some of the other harmful effects of alcohol consumption. So alcoholic liver disease results from the effects of long-term excessive consumption of alcohol on the liver. The onset and progression of alcoholic liver disease varies between people and this suggests that there may be some genetic predisposition to the harmful effects of alcohol on the liver with some people able to tolerate a lot more alcohol than others. There's a stepwise progression of damage to the liver in alcoholic liver disease. The first step is alcohol-related fatty liver, and this is where drinking leads to the build-up of fat in the liver. And if the drinking stops, this process reverses in about two weeks. The second step is alcoholic hepatitis, And this is where drinking alcohol over a long period of time causes inflammation in the liver. Binge drinking is associated with the same effect. And mild alcoholic hepatitis is usually reversible with permanent abstinence. But if you continue to drink and there's moderate or severe hepatitis, it usually progresses onto the third step. And the third step is cirrhosis. And this is where the liver is made up of scar tissue rather than healthy liver tissue. And this is irreversible. Stopping drinking can prevent further damage, but continued drinking carries a really poor prognosis. So let's look at the recommended alcohol consumption. The latest recommendations from the Department of Health in 2016 are to not regularly drink more than 14 units per week. And this is the same for both men and women. They also recommend that if you're drinking 14 units in a week, this should be spread evenly over three or more days and not more than five units in a single day. The government guidelines also state that any level of alcohol consumption at all increases the risk of certain cancers, particularly breast, mouth and throat cancer, and pregnant women should completely avoid alcohol, as there's no safe level of alcohol consumption in pregnancy. How do we screen for a problem with alcohol consumption? We can use the CAGE questions, which is a really simple thing and easy to remember that you can use in your exams. So what are the CAGE questions? Well, it's a mnemonic. C is for cut down. And the question is, have you ever thought you should cut down? A is for annoyed. And the question is, have you ever been or do you ever get annoyed at other people commenting on your drinking? G is for guilty. And this is, do you ever feel guilty about your drinking? And then E is for eye-opener. And this is, do you ever drink in the morning to get over your hangover or to settle your nerves? Another screening tool which takes slightly longer but is more detailed is called the audit questionnaire. And this is the Alcohol Use Disorders Identification Test, which was developed by the World Health Organization to screen people for the harmful use of alcohol. It involves 10 questions and they're multiple choice answers and it gives a score 
at the end of the 10 questions, and a score above 8 or more gives an indication of possible harmful use of alcohol. So let's just quickly list the complications of excessive alcohol consumption. Well, as we're talking about, there's alcoholic liver disease. This then progresses to cirrhosis, and you have all the complications associated with cirrhosis, which include portal hypertension, varices, ascites, hepatic encephalopathy, and potentially hepatocellular carcinoma. And we'll go through cirrhosis in a lot more detail at a different time. Another complication is alcohol dependence and withdrawal, Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome, pancreatitis, and alcoholic cardiomyopathy, where the alcohol directly affects the heart muscle. So if you've got somebody who's drinking quite a lot and you're wondering whether they have some alcoholic liver disease, what signs can you look for on examination? These signs that we're going to talk about are relevant to almost all liver disease and patients who have got cirrhosis. So you can get jaundice, hepatomegaly or a large palpable liver, spider nevi, palmar erythema, which is like red changes on the palm of your hand, gynecomastia, which is the development of breast tissue in men, bruising, which is caused by abnormal clotting because the liver is not able to produce those clotting factors that it should normally be producing, ascites, which is the build-up of fluid inside the abdomen, caput medusa, which is engorged superficial veins around the umbilicus, and asterixis, which is a flapping tremor which can occur in decompensated liver disease when you ask the patient to hold their arm out with their hands pulled backwards, they'll start to develop a flap. What investigations can you do in somebody who you suspect might have alcoholic liver disease? Do some blood tests, and on the blood test you might find a raised MCV on the full blood count. When you do liver function tests, you might find an elevated transaminases, such as ALT and AST. And you also, particularly specific to alcohol, find a raised gamma GT. ALP can also become elevated later in the disease. And you might find a low albumin because the liver is not able to produce those proteins as well as it did. In cirrhosis, you can also have an elevated bilirubin, which is what causes the jaundice. When you do clotting factors, you might find an elevated prothrombin time. And again, this is because of the reduced synthetic function of the liver. So the liver is not able to produce those clotting factors like it should be. And the use and ease blood test can become deranged in hepatorenal syndrome, which is a complication of cirrhosis. If you do an ultrasound of the abdomen, the liver can show some fatty changes, which are described as increased echogenicity. You can also find changes associated with cirrhosis, and this is things like ascites, changes in the structure of the blood vessels entering the liver, and nodularity on the surface of the liver. You can also do something called a fibroscan, and this can be used to check the elasticity of the liver. And they send high-frequency sound waves into the liver to assess how fibrosed or how stiff the liver tissue is, and this can help you to assess the degree of cirrhosis. You can consider an endoscopy, which can be used to assess and treat for esophageal varices if you think there's portal hypertension present. CT and MRI scans can be used to look for fatty infiltration of the liver, hepatocellular carcinoma, hepatosplenomegaly, abnormal blood vessels and ascites. 
and then a liver biopsy can be used to absolutely confirm the diagnosis of alcohol-related hepatitis or cirrhosis. NICE actually recommend considering a liver biopsy in all patients where steroid treatment is being considered prior to giving them the steroids. So how do we manage alcohol-related liver disease? Well, the main thing is to stop drinking alcohol permanently, and this will at least stop the progression of the disease and may actually improve some of the liver changes. When you stop alcohol in somebody who's dependent on alcohol, of course you need to consider a detoxification regime, which we'll talk about shortly. Nutritional support is very important with vitamins, particularly thiamine, and we'll talk about why very shortly. And also we provide a high-protein diet to compensate for the liver's reduced production of proteins. Steroids have been shown to improve short-term outcomes over about one month in severe alcoholic hepatitis, but they need to be treated properly for any infections or any GI bleeding prior to giving them steroids, and they don't improve outcomes over a longer period of time from three months plus. Of course, if they develop cirrhosis, you need to treat the complications of the cirrhosis. So this is treating the portal hypertension, varices, ascites, and encephalopathy, if any of those occur. Finally, you can consider referral for a liver transplant in severe disease. However, they need to abstain from alcohol for three months prior to the referral, and then they need to be completely abstaining from alcohol for the remainder of their life after the liver transplant. Next, let's talk about alcohol withdrawal. When someone is dependent on alcohol, there's a risk of them withdrawing and having withdrawal symptoms when they stop drinking. And these can range from mild and uncomfortable to severe symptoms, which we call delirium tremens, which can be life-threatening. And symptoms occur at different times after they stop drinking the alcohol. So between 6 and 12 hours after stopping drinking alcohol, They develop tremor, sweating, headache, cravings and anxiety type symptoms. After 12 to 24 hours, they can develop hallucinations. After 24 to 48 hours, they can develop seizures. And the danger period for delirium tremens is between 24 and 72 hours. So let's talk about delirium tremens. And delirium tremens is a medical emergency and it's associated with alcohol withdrawal and has a mortality rate of about 35% if it's left untreated. So how does it work? Well, alcohol works by stimulating GABA receptors in the brain. So these GABA receptors have a relaxing effect on the rest of the brain when they're stimulated. Alcohol also inhibits glutamate receptors And these are also known as NMDA receptors. And by inhibiting the glutamate receptors, they have an even more inhibitory effect on the electrical activity in the brain, or an even more relaxing effect on the brain. So it works in two ways, stimulates GABA receptors, which causes relaxation, and inhibits glutamate receptors. And this also causes relaxation. Chronic alcohol use results in the GABA system becoming upregulated, and the glutamate system becoming down-regulated to balance the effects of the alcohol. So this means when they remove the alcohol from the system, the GABA doesn't function as well as it would in a normal person, and the glutamate over-functions compared to a normal person, 
and this leads to extreme excitability in the brain with a lot of adrenergic activity or a lot of adrenaline type activity. So it presents as acute confusion, severe agitation, delusions and hallucinations, tremor, tachycardia, really fast heart rate, hypertension, very high blood pressure, hypothermia, very high temperature, ataxia, which is difficulties with coordinated movement, and cardiac arrhythmias. So it's quite severe. So how do we manage alcohol withdrawal to try and prevent these withdrawal symptoms? It's worth knowing about the CEWA, which is the Clinical Institute of Withdrawal Assessment tool, which can be used to score the patient on their withdrawal symptoms, and it gives a prescription about how much treatment they should be given based on how much symptoms they're having. And the treatment that we give is chlordiazepoxide, which is commonly known as Librium, and it's a benzodiazepine that's used to combat the effects of alcohol withdrawal. Less commonly, we use diazepam as an alternative. And this chlordiazepoxide is given orally as a reducing regime that's titrated based on the local alcohol withdrawal protocol. And this protocol might be something like 10 to 40 milligrams every 1 to 4 hours based on the symptoms. Chlordiazepoxide is typically continued for 5 to 7 days to get them through that full alcohol withdrawal period and the danger period for delirium tremens. Whenever we see somebody who potentially could withdraw from alcohol or has prolonged excessive use of alcohol, we give them vitamin B1 and we'll talk about that very shortly. Usually we give intravenous high dose B vitamins which is commonly known as Pabronex and this is given to boost their B vitamin stores and after they finish the course of intravenous vitamins they should continue regular lower dose oral thiamine to make sure they don't become vitamin B1 deficient. Let's talk about why and this is something called Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome. Alcohol leads to thiamine or vitamin B1 deficiency and this is because thiamine is poorly absorbed in the presence of alcohol and alcoholics tend to have very poor diets and rely on alcohol for their calories. Wernicke's encephalopathy is a condition that comes before Korsakoff syndrome and they're both caused by a deficiency in vitamin B1 or thiamine. The features of Wernicke's encephalopathy are things like confusion, ocular motor disturbances, which is disturbances of eye movements, and ataxia, or difficulty with coordinating their movements. Wernicke's encephalopathy can often progress to a more chronic condition called Korsakoff syndrome, and this is where the patient has long-term memory impairments, both retrograde and anterograde, so they forget information from the past and they have difficulty making new memories and they have behavioural changes, quite similar to a dementia-type illness. Wernicke's encephalopathy is a medical emergency, and it can have quite a high mortality rate if it's not treated. And Korsakoff syndrome is often irreversible, and results in patients requiring full-time institutional care to look after them, because they have that many difficulties with memory and behaviour. Prevention is key to make sure they get their thiamine vitamins, and treatment involves thiamine supplementation and abstaining from alcohol.